As we were planning on the, this Bible conference and the theme and inviting certain speakers to come in, one of the first individuals that I thought of was Pastor Tim Lehman. Pastor Lehman is pastoring the Calvary Baptist Church in Westminster, Maryland. I've had the privilege of being in his ministry. Uh, it is a wonderful church and wonderful people. And I thought about someone that would come in and, and handle God's Word because that's very important here. And you understand that because you sit day in and day out listening to Bible preaching. And, and whether you realize what good Bible preaching is or not, at least you have an appetite and you, and you develop that. And that's healthy and that's important because when you graduate, you want to find a church that is a very strong Bible preaching and teaching church. And that is the church that Pastor Lehman is the shepherd of. He, as a young man, grew up on the mission field with his parents in Papua New Guinea. At the age of 16 years old, he felt the call of God to preach. He graduated from Bob Jones University in 1989 with an undergrad degree in 1991 with an MA degree in Bible. Went on to get his Master of Divinity degree and has been serving in Maryland ever since. A good solid, warm-hearted, tender, compassionate pastor. And if you got a pastor like that, you're a blessed person. And I'm so glad that the Lord has brought Pastor Layman to speak to us tonight. So please open your heart to him as he comes and speaks, and let's give him a warm welcome tonight. Thank you. If you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to Luke chapter 15? Luke chapter 15, very familiar portion of God's Word. I want to thank Dr. Pettit for the opportunity of preaching at this Bible conference. I was at Bob Jones University for nine years and uh, nine formative years in my life. The Lord uh, used my time here, the professors, uh, in in a great way in my life, and I'm very glad to be here tonight. Every time I come on this campus, I just have many fond memories that come back to me, and uh, I'm so glad that uh, the Lord has given me this opportunity this evening. I wonder if you like a good story. You do if you're a human being, because God wired us and made us so that we respond well to stories. Every preacher that's here tonight knows that you can very easily see that glazed look in the eyes of your people that you've lost them. But if you tell an intriguing story, instantly they perk up and they want to hear what you're saying. Every preacher in this room knows that this is true. Stories have been called mankind's native language because stories not only make a point but they connect with us in a way that we can experience what is being told. One of the reasons the Bible is such a captivating book is because it has a grand storyline. We read of creation, the fall, redemption, and restoration. Therefore, it's not surprising that Jesus was the greatest storyteller that the world has ever known. 
Yes, he was much more than that. But he was the Word who became flesh. He is the greatest revelation of God to humanity. He is God's last word to man. And this evening, I want us to consider the greatest short story ever told by the greatest teacher the world has ever known, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I'm referring, of course, to what is commonly known as the parable of the prodigal son. This parable has everything that you could ever want in a story. It has tension, disaster, redemption, a happy reunion, and an unexpected ending. And all of this is accomplished with an amazing economy of words. This famous story is the last parable in a trilogy of parables that our Lord taught in response to a challenge by the Pharisees. Look with me, please, at Luke chapter 15, verses 1 and 2. Then drew near unto him all the publicans and sinners for to hear him. And the Pharisees and scribes murmured, saying, This man receiveth sinners and eateth with them. And he spake this parable unto them, saying, and that's the beginning of the three parables. These three parables are intended to explain to the Pharisees why Jesus received notoriously sinful people. And the answer given in these parables is because God delights to save lost, repentant sinners. Notice the interpretive refrain in the first two parables. Look with me at verse 7. I say unto you that likewise joy shall be in heaven over one sinner that repenteth, more than over ninety and nine just persons which need no repentance. Now look with me, please, at verse 10. Likewise, I say unto you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner that repenteth. Now, these first two parables are very brief, and they very concisely make their point. The final parable is much more fully developed. Now, let me first of all say that the parable of the prodigal son is really misnamed. It begins in verse 11, and it says, a certain man. The focus is not on the sons, it's on the father. It could more accurately be called the parable of the gracious or loving father. This is where I found a connection with our conference theme, Hesed. Because God's Hesed love for his covenant people, you might assume that God has no concern for really sinful people. That's how the Pharisees reasoned and why they were so disturbed that Jesus gave his time and attention to very wicked people. But Jesus reveals in this parable the heart of God for broken sinners. It's also important to remember that this parable is about two sons, not just one. It says a certain man had two sons. The prodigal son represents the publicans and sinners that came to hear our Lord. And, of course, the older brother represents the Pharisees. This is really a story told in two acts. The first act begins in verse 11 and chronicles the life and times of the prodigal. 
while the second act commences in verse 25 and reveals the heart attitude of the Pharisees as seen in the older brother. This evening, I'd like us to consider the first act of this very familiar parable. And Lord willing, on Friday morning, we will consider the second half of this parable and the older brother. Now, one of the dangers of preaching this passage is I suspect that every single person in this room knows how this story goes. You've heard it perhaps from your parents in some kind of storybook that they taught you as a kid. You may have heard it in your Sunday school class. You've heard it preached from many, many times. And so I run the risk of you just turning me off or tuning me out and saying, I know what this story is about. I know what it means. I don't need to hear. But I trust that you will give God's precious word the attention that it deserves. I'm going to preach to you this evening on God's gracious love for lost sinners. And I have three points that I want to bring out of this first half of the parable. The first one is that God's love for sinners is extended even to scandalous sinners. Look with me, please, at verses 11 and 12. And he said, a certain man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falleth to me. And he divided unto him his living. Everyone knows a prodigal son. They're very easy to recognize. He is a foolish, rebellious young man who wants to party and has no thought about the consequences of his actions. In World War II, when recruiters were looking for just the right person to be trained as a fighter pilot, they discovered something interesting. They discovered that the candidates they wanted to go for were young men between the ages of 18 and 19. And the reason for that is they discerned that young men of that age were very willing to take great risks. And they didn't think about the consequences. By the time they had become 20 or 21, they would start saying, wait a minute, you want me to do what? And they were a little hesitant to take on a mission. I say that to you because many scholars think that this prodigal is probably between the ages of 17 and 19. So he's at that age when young men often make foolish choices and they never think about the consequences of their actions. He makes a shocking request of his father. He says, give me the portion of goods that falleth unto me. He wanted his inheritance and he wanted it now. This would have been considered very disrespectful in this ancient Jewish culture. As a younger son, he would have been entitled to one third of the inheritance, but only after his father's death. But his father was very much alive. And so essentially, he is saying, Dad, I don't care about you. I don't care about my relationship with you. I just want your money. And we read that the father complied with his request. He gave him his inheritance. And this was no easy task. It's very unlikely that this father had a third of his estate in liquid assets. Undoubtedly, he had to sell some of the family land to get the boy his money. And this would have grieved the father 
deeply because ancestral land was considered a sacred trust. My point is that on so many levels, this was a wrong request. This was defiance and rebellion against a loving and gracious man. This wayward son never considered his father and the tears that must have flowed down his cheeks at night as he thought about the path that his son was on. The son never gave a thought to the disruption that undoubtedly occurred within his family with this startling request. And he never thought about the bad example that he was setting in that village, in that little community, and how he was bringing shame and disgrace upon his father's name. This was a big deal and a shame-honor culture. But the son is intense on going his way. The story here reveals to us the ugliness of sin. In verse 13, we read, And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together and took his journey into a far country. He didn't wait around to say long goodbyes. He made a rapid exit. He couldn't wait to get out of the father's house. You see, Sinners always seek to live independently of God. It's been this way since Adam and Eve fell in the garden. This young man couldn't wait to get away from his father. father. No more lectures, no more curfews, no more warnings, no more boring services in the synagogue. He was free at last. You see, this young man desperately wanted to live life on his own terms. So he gathered all of this money, probably a substantial amount of money, one-third of his father's estate, and everything in the description of this parable reveals that this was a very wealthy man. I imagine he had a bag filled with gold and silver coins, and he headed off to the far country. This would have been a Gentile city. When my wife and I visited Israel in 2011, we had an excellent tour guide who took us to the ruins of a Gentile city not far from Galilee. Our tour guide told us that when Jesus told his parable and he referred to the far country, that everyone in his original audience would have thought of this Gentile city. It was known as Sin City. It was a place of wine, women, and song. And undoubtedly, the prodigal had heard tales of this city, and it captured his heart. This is where he wanted to go. This is where he wanted to live. And he wanted to live his life in self-indulgence. And so he goes out to the far country, a free-spending young man, and he wasted a fortune. You know, you would not even have to know this story at all, but just this part, you would kind of know it was not going to end well because his plan wasn't good. I want you to notice the two alls in our text. In verse 13, we read that he gathered all. And in verse 14, we read that he spent all. It says in verse 14, and when he had spent all, there arose a mighty famine in that land, and he began to be in want. Now, the term prodigal comes from the Latin translation of riotous living. 
It expresses someone who is recklessly extravagant in their spending. His life was one great party until the money ran out. We see in this first part of this story, this downward spiral in this man's life. First, he left his father's house in disgrace. Then his money ran out. Third, a famine came to the land. And we read, he began to be in want. That is, his basic needs for survival were not being met. And so we read in verse 15, he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country. And he sent him into his fields to feed the swine. This is the next step down in that downward spiral of degradation that leads to death. When it says he joined himself, the the word is he attached himself or he glued himself to this man. The idea is that this was an act of desperation. If you've ever visited a third world country and you've been in certain areas, you will have beggars who come up to you, sometimes young men, and they will, they will like attach themselves to you and they won't take no for an answer. And wherever you go, they will follow you. And they will incessantly be calling and asking for money or for your shoes or for your clothes or for something. That's what this man was like. His life was on the line. This was his last option. And so he's desperate and begging this man for help. But there's still one step further down. We read of him feeding these pigs. I think that when Jesus originally told this story to his Jewish audience, there was an audible gasp because this was absolutely disgraceful. Of course, the Jews had the dietary restrictions of not eating pork. In time through the centuries, they came to detest and despise pigs. And the idea of a nobleman's son feeding pigs was unthinkable. And then we have another step further down in verse 16. And he would fain had filled his belly with the husk that the swine did eat, and no man gave unto him. The husk here refers to a variety of carob pods that are found in the Middle East. They are tasteless and without nutritional value, sort of like eating cardboard. But to a starving man, they look pretty good. And then he said, then we read, and no man gave unto him. The idea is that no one in the far country cared for him. No one was concerned for him. There was no safety net. There was no organization to help people who were starving. It was every man for himself. And the idea is that he was so dirty and smelly that even the Gentiles wanted nothing to do with him. So these are the consequences of his sin. He is separated from his father, and he is as good as dead. Because the wages of sin is death, and whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. But he is not without hope. Because back home, he has a father who has never stopped loving him. That brings me to the second movement within this story. My second point, and that is that God's love for sinners is realized by those who repent 
and come to him by faith. And we begin now in verse 17. If you've ever studied literature, you may recall analyzing stories and identifying the central turning point in the narrative. In the parable of the prodigal son, this moment is expressed in the initial phrase in verse 17, and when he came to himself. Or we might say, when he came to his senses. This is like the hinge of the whole parable. Now, doctrinally, we would call this repentance. The Greek word for repentance means a change of mind. However, this does not mean that repentance is just an intellectual exercise. No, it's a change of of the entire inner man, his mind, his will, and his emotions. And we see this in this parable. First of all, he has a change of mind about himself. He thought he was so clever and resourceful when he left his father's home. He thought he had life all figured out. He had no time to hear the advice of his father or the counsel of the village elders. But now he comes to the sad realization that he has been a fool all along. He was living under a delusion. Notice what he says to himself at the end of verse 17. He says, I perish with hunger. He finally realizes the reality of his situation. This young man now understands that if he doesn't take drastic action, he will die. You see, a person must realize they are lost before they are found. Secondly, he has a change of mind about his father. The father in this parable, of course, represents the Lord, our gracious heavenly father. Notice how Jesus, the storyteller, uses internal dialogue to help us understand what the prodigal son is thinking. It says, he thinks to himself, how many hired servants of my father have bread enough and to spare, and I perish with hunger. When the prodigal son left home, he couldn't wait to get away from his father. But now in his brokenness, He thinks differently about his dad. What does he remember about his father? Well, he remembers that his father is a good and generous man. You see, his father's hired servants weren't like most hired servants who just had enough to survive, to just eke out a living for their families. No, his father's servants had an abundance of food. We don't know about this very much in our part of the world, but throughout most of human history, the greatest worry, the greatest concern that people had concerned food security. Am I and my family going to starve to death because we don't have the resources we need? This man's hired servants never had to worry because they worked for a gracious man who made certain that they were taken care of. In fact, everyone in the village wanted to work for his dad because he was a fair and generous man. Now, when the prodigal left home, he viewed his father as a foolish old man who stood in his way of happiness. But now his perspective has changed. For many days, the prodigal son lived, I suspect, in the far country as if his father did not exist. He never thought of him as he went about his pursuits. 
He never missed home. He never thought about the pain and suffering of his family and how they were grieving over his departure to the far country. For many days, the prodigal son lived as if his father did not exist. This is the mindset of every lost person. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Despite the claim to the contrary, lost people live as if there is no God. But now the prodigal suddenly remembers his father. He remembers that he is a good man, that he is a gracious man, and perhaps he is a forgiving man. But third, he has a change of mind about his sin. This is clearly reflected in his confession. In verse 18, he says, I will rise and go to my father and will say unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before thee. Did you notice how he views his sin as being primarily against God? He says, I have sinned against heaven. The reference to heaven was a respectful Jewish way of referring to God. This is the same spirit that we see in David's great psalm of repentance, Psalm 51, where he says, Against thee and thee only have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight. And notice the spirit of humility and brokenness that accompanies his confession. He says in verse 19, And I'm not, no more worthy to be called thy son. Make me as one of thy hired servants. Notice, he doesn't return home demanding his rights. That's how he left, but that's not how he returns. Instead, he essentially says, I don't even deserve to live here. I don't deserve to be your son. In verse 19, we have a reference to hired servants. These servants were day laborers who received minimal payment with no expectation of steady work. We still have day laborers today. This past week, in a town near to where I live, I went to Home Depot, and over there in the corner, there were a group of men waiting and hoping that someone would hire them for the day for cash under the table. It's always been that way, and it was this way in ancient times. You see, the prodigal son was not asking his father to receive him home He was asking if his father would spare his life. This is the kind of broken spirit that secures God's pardon. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. When you are truly broken over your sin, you will come before God like a beggar. The prodigal doesn't come home negotiating terms with his father. He doesn't say, I will come home, but I will not accept any of your curfews. And every Friday night, I'm going to stay out the whole night and have a party with my friends, and I don't want to hear any lectures from you about it. No, repentant sinners come to God with no leverage, with no demands, with no sense of entitlements. Instead, they come with empty hands and a broken heart. However, we should never think that our repentance has earned our favor with God. God's not impressed with our tears or our words of remorse. God does not save us because of the merit of our repentance. No, he forgives us because of what Christ has done for us on the cross. In fact, we could never even repent without God graciously working within us.
However, those who come to God in faith and repentance are forgiven. I remember years ago, there was a man who's gone to be with the Lord now for over 30 years. His name was Jesse Boyd. He taught on the Bible faculty here and was the pastor of Mount Calvary Baptist Church. And he had many memorable sayings. One of those was that God will save a sinner, but not a rebel. And he went on to say that the rebel must lay down his weapons and bow and surrender to the Lord in order to be saved. You can't say, I will come, but I'm going to come with my weapons and I'm going to fight you each step of the way. But now we must move on to the most instructive portion of this story. Let me summarize where we've been. God's love for sinners is extended even to scandalous, notorious sinners. And God's love is realized by those who repent and come by faith to Him. But thirdly, I want you to see that God's love for sinners is demonstrated in His readiness to, for, to receive broken sinners. Look with me, please, now at verse 20. And he that is the prodigal arose and came to his father. And now we come to this beloved climax of this story. We read, but when he was yet a great way off, his father saw him. The clear implication was that this was not a chance occurrence, but that his father was looking for him. How many days did the father search the horizon for his son, hoping and praying that he would return? Most of Israel is very flat with few trees, and so you can generally see for miles. And so the father... I imagine sees the solitary figure walking on the road to their village off in the distance. And he begins to hope and wonder, is this my boy? He looks carefully and intently, and perhaps his son had a certain posture or an unusual gait to his walk. And suddenly the father realizes, it is my son. But this is where the real interesting response comes. How would this father receive his prodigal son? This is really important part of not just this parable, but of the whole string of parables in this chapter. Remember, the whole intent of these parables is to reveal how God receives sinners. So how does the father receive the son? Our text mentions four ways. First of all, the father receives his sinful son compassionately. Compassionately. We see that here. It says the father saw him and had compassion. Why was the father compassionate towards his son? I'm sure there are many reasons. I want to mention two. First of all, because his father was a compassionate man. This is the answer to a lot of theological questions. Why does God love us? It's not because we're lovable. It's because God is love. That's his nature. Why was this father so compassionate towards his son despite what he had done? Because he was a man of compassion. We've already seen how he had compassion for his workers. 
What is fascinating here is that the Greek word that's translated compassion is used about a dozen times in the New Testament. And it's always used to describe our Lord's response, or it's found in a parable told by our Lord. Several times we read in the Gospels that Jesus, when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion. Why was Jesus so sympathetic to the needs of people? The answer is because he was just like his Father. You see, our Heavenly Father is a compassionate God. Let me ask you, do you believe this? Do you believe that God is a God of compassion? Dr. Pettit made mention of this the other night when he was talking about the children of Israel in Exodus 34, how God revealed himself to Moses and how they probably thought if you asked them, what's God like? They would say, well, he's a God of judgment and wrath. And there's many people who still think that way. But our Heavenly Father is a God of compassion. And so often people don't come to the Lord because they think He's just going to condemn me. He's just going to judge me. He's just going to dismiss me. He's going to treat me like the Pharisees would have treated this young man if he had returned. But there's another reason the prodigal son responded Why the father responded with compassion to the prodigal son, and I think that's because of the way his son looked when he returned. When he left, I imagine he was a picture of health. He was in the prime of his youth. He was the son of a very wealthy man, so he had the finest foods and everything he needed. But can you picture him now as he returns? His clothes were tattered, they were torn and filthy. His body was emaciated. You could probably see his ribs. He smelled like a pig pen, and he had flies that covered his body. His face was thin and gaunt, and his wry smile was replaced with a jaded, empty stare. This is the type of person our Heavenly Father loves to welcome home, those who are broken, lost, and desperately seeking His grace. Isaiah 42 and verse 3 describes God's response to sinners this way, A bruised reed shall he not break, and the smoking flax shall he not quench. The father receives his son compassionately. And secondly, he receives him affectionately. The next thing we read is that the father ran towards his son. This seems like a perfectly normal reaction to us. But that's not the way Jesus' original audience would have received this. The Father's response would have really bothered them. It would have been considered completely undignified. You see, in the East, it's very inappropriate for a mature man, especially a man of some status in society, to run. In fact, for over a thousand years, Arabic Bible translators refused to render the common Greek word for run in this parable with its Arabic equivalents. Instead, they said that he hurried to meet his son. Because these translators knew that their readers would be shocked to read of a nobleman running. But this father put aside all social norms because his beloved son had finally come home. And when he reached his son, he fell on his neck. 
This was no simple hug. It was a spontaneous and intense display of affection. Have you ever seen reunion scenes where people, loved ones, have been parted for many, many years and they reunite? It's a very powerful thing to witness. Dr. Pettit mentioned that I grew up on the mission field. My family left there due to my father's health concerns when I was nine years old. And the most significant thing that my father did was train a young man for ministry. He led this young man to the Lord. He gave him some training and sent him off to a little local Bible college that was run by other missionaries. He's a little older than I was. He was about 16, I think, when I was nine. And this young man went to that little Bible college there, and he became a preacher, and he became a very well-known preacher in the country of Papua New Guinea. And in 1993, when I was in graduate school, he came to Bob Jones University to see me. He came with some other missionaries that had come into town. And I remember I called, he called me on the phone, and I said, I'll meet you in the student center area. And I met him there, and he was this little man. He's about five foot two. And he comes, and he runs up, and he hugs me. And he's from a different culture, very effusive. And he hugged me for about five minutes at least. And it was a little awkward. Everyone's walking around me, and there's this man just clutching to me and crying. He hadn't seen me since I was nine years old. I was now 25. But that's the kind of powerful emotional response we have here. What did the Father's affectionate embrace signify? Complete and unconditional acceptance. And then we read that the Father kissed him. The Greek grammar signifies that he repeatedly kissed him. He couldn't, he couldn't constrain himself from just kissing his, his son's face tenderly. Because the son that he thought was dead is alive, and he's come back home. But thirdly, he not only received his, his son affectionately and uh, eagerly, but he receives his son graciously. Once the shock of his father's response wore off, the prodigal son begins to deliver his confession. Look with me at verse 21. And the son said unto him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and in thy sight, and am no more worthy to be called thy son. Now, if you compare his confession here to what he planned to say back in verse 19, you will notice that he leaves out, make me as one of your hired servants. Why is that? I think it's because his father interrupts him before he has a chance to finish. Have you ever tried to apologize to someone, and before you really get all the words out, they're saying, hey, listen, there's nothing to it. You're completely forgiven. I'm not at all offended by it. And, and you're almost, you're happy, but you're almost a little put out. I had this really nice confession I was going to give, and you didn't give me a chance to give it. That's kind of what's happening here. But his confession was right on the mark. He had no right to be received as a son. This fallen man had nothing to offer his father. He had done nothing to contribute to his father's wealth or status. Instead, he had depleted one-third of the family estates. But more importantly, he had brought disgrace to the family name. And in an honor-shame culture, 
this was huge. You see, it's not just that he didn't deserve the treatment that he received. He deserved the opposite of this treatment. And yet the father not only forgives him and accepts him, but he lavishes gifts upon him. When the Pharisees heard this story, they were undoubtedly greatly offended by the father's response. It was scandalous. It was disgraceful. They couldn't grasp the meaning of this parable because they didn't understand grace. Now, perhaps this story doesn't make sense to you. Maybe you're thinking, how could the father respond this way? It really doesn't seem very equitable or fair. Well, the fact is you can only make sense of this story through the lens of the cross. Because at the cross, Jesus paid the debt for all prodigals. You see, this is the only way that God can be just and the one who justifies. This is the only explanation for how the Father can demonstrate this extravagant, loving grace to sinful sons and daughters like us. But there's more. Look with me at verse 22. The father said to his servants, bring forth the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. Did you notice that the prodigal son does absolutely nothing? He doesn't bathe himself and get dressed for dinner. It's all done for him because salvation is of the Lord. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. But what is the significance of these gifts the Father has given to His Son. We we read here of the best robe. This was a long, luxurious garment that was only worn on special occasions. And there was only one robe like this in the mansion, and that was the Father's robe. I see here a picture of justification. The honorable and righteous status of the Father was imputed to the Son. Isaiah 61 and verse 10 says, He hath clothed me with the garments of salvation. He hath covered me with the robe of righteousness. Then a ring was placed on his finger. This was not just any ring. This was undoubtedly a signet ring. It was used to sign documents with the family seal. The ring speaks of his authority and legal standing in society. And then we read that he put shoes on his feet. In the ancient Near East, only family members wore shoes. All servants and slaves went barefoot. The wearing of shoes speaks of his being a member of the family again. And all three of these actions are symbolic of sonship. Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. Let me ask you, are you enjoying this gracious standing before God? Or do you feel like you're not fully accepted by God because of your sinful past? There's an awful lot of people who struggle with being forgiven because of their sinful past. Pastors know this. This past week, I was called by a man in our church who was saved about three years ago from a very difficult and sinful lifestyle. He was saved as an adult. 
And he called me up on the phone and he said, Pastor, I just got to ask you, has God really forgiven me for all my sins? He says, do you realize how many wicked things I have done? They constantly come to my mind and they weigh down on my soul when I remember all the horrible things that I have done time and time again. It's almost every day some fresh memory comes to my mind. Are you sure that God has really forgiven me for all my sins? And I was delighted to give him a strong yes answer, backed up by Scripture. You see, God doesn't have any stepsons. He doesn't have any estranged sons that are in his doghouse. Everyone who has come by repentance and faith to him is fully accepted as a son or daughter. The Lord receives sinners compassionately, affectionately, graciously. And would you notice with me finally, the Lord receives sinners joyfully. This is one of the major themes of this chapter that is woven like a thread through every section of the garment. Look with me, please, at verses 6 and 7. And when he cometh home, he calleth together his friends and neighbors, saying unto them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. I say unto you that likewise joy shall be in heaven over one sinner that repenteth more than over ninety-nine just persons which need no repentance. And when it says it'll be in heaven, it means, again, this is an indirect way of referring to God. Now look with me at verses 9 and 10, the next parable parable of the lost silver. And when she found it, she called her friends and her neighbors together, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the peace which I had lost. Likewise, I say unto you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner that repenteth. And when it says the presence of the angels, it's referring to the Lord. Look with me at verse 23. Bring hither the fatted calf and kill it, and let us eat and be Mary, verse 24, and they began to be merry. And now look at the very last verse of this entire chapter and this trilogy of parables in verse 32. It says, it was meet that we should make merry and be glad. This is Jesus' answer to the complaint of the Pharisees that started this whole chain of instruction. Their question to Jesus was, why do you give such attention to sinful people? And the answer that Jesus gives in these three parables is because God delights in graciously saving repentant sinners. This is his hesed love. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Notice the extravagant feast that is portrayed here. Look with me at verse 23. Bring hither the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat. The fatted calf was an animal that was set apart from all the other animals. It was given a special diet of grain. It was saved for a very special social occasion, like a wedding or the birth of a son. So this banquet was no minor celebration. This would have been the social event of the year in that village. And this meal was symbolic of communion and reconciliation between the father and the runaway son. Everyone in that village knew that he was fully accepted. And an event like this didn't last for a few hours like it does 
and our Western culture. No, it would have lasted for days, if not a week. Why did the Father give this feast? Because He wanted His joy to be shared by others. You see, when our joy is shared by others, it somehow completes it. That's why like going to to enjoy something and seeing something spectacular, if you have no one to share it with and no one to tell about it, it's not nearly as enjoyable as being able to share it with others and makes your joy take up to another notch. He wanted everyone in this community to rejoice with him because his son, for all intents and purposes, was dead, but he was alive, he was lost, and now is found. The Bible tells us that before we were saved, we were spiritually dead. We were all once non-responsive to God and to the truth of the gospel. Therefore, the salvation of a sinner is a great, is cause for great celebration. When a person is converted, they pass from death unto life. And the joy of our salvation should not last for a little while or even a lifetime, but for all eternity. Notice how the first half of this parable ends in verse 24. I love this. And they began to be merry. In other words, this elaborate celebration was just the beginning. And I think it alludes to the eternity that we will experience in heaven someday of marveling over our great salvation. But this celebration is only for sinners who repent and believe the gospel. Will you be there for that celebration? I'd like to quickly now give just a few words of application. One of the most effective lies that Satan tells to lost sinners is that they're not good enough to come to God. And so many people think they must clean up their act in order to come to God, and then he will receive them. But this is all wrong. We see in this parable that the prodigal came home just as he was, dirty and dying. Shame and guilt keep so many people from coming to God. They think that forgiveness is for those nearly perfect people who go to church. But let me remind you of the lesson of this passage. God receives sinners compassionately, affectionately, graciously, and joyfully. John 6, 37 says, All that the Father giveth me will come to me, and him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. Now, I can't imagine that in a group this size, there aren't many people who are still in the far country and in need of forgiveness. Won't you come to this loving Father today? He will never turn you away. He will receive you. There's a sense in which every single sinner who is saved is received just like this lost son. And so don't think of God response to you like that of the Pharisees. My second application is one of the great lies that many Christians believe is that God is horribly disappointed with them. Even though they might affirm that they believe the gospel, they don't really feel accepted by God because of their repeated spiritual failures. I see this all the time as a pastor. 
And so, so many Christians keep their distance from the Lord, living somewhere between the far country and the Father's house. But this is no way, no way for children of the Father to live. I want you to know something, that when God saved you, He knew every sin that you would ever commit. You may at times be shocked and horrified by the things that you do as a believer, but I want you to know it's never taken God by surprise. He knew it all the moment He welcomed you home. Yes, sin can break our fellowship with God. This is why we must confess our sins to maintain that fellowship. But our standing before God as the sons and daughters of God never changes. Because of our Father, our Father's love is steadfast and unchanging. But the main application of this parable is this. Do we respond to notoriously sinful people like the Pharisees or like Jesus? Are you comfortable around people who are very different from you? Do you avoid sketchy people? Or do they avoid you because they can tell that you're very uncomfortable and you're likely to condemn them if they get anywhere close to you? I think that many Christians never interact with scandalous sinners. In fact, they might think that's what a Christian should do. We're to be separate from the world, and so I'm going to do nothing, have nothing to do with these people. But Jesus, the Son of God, the holiest man who ever walked on this earth, was a friend of sinners. In fact, sinners sought him out because they knew that he loved them. And the reason he loved them is because he's just like his father. May God help us to respond to sinners like our master. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it always speaks to us. I pray that you would take what has been said tonight and use it for your purposes. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.